0: ourselves for revival. Because when we uh, solely focus on old revivals, what we can do is start to produce something called revivalism. Okay, and revivalism is a spirit which will want to fabricate what happened in the past. And then you become enslaved trying to make it happen. You start trying to re- mimic all the things that they did before and it starts to burn people out, starting to search for revival. Rather, what I did was I looked at the key biblical defining marks of revival. And so for the next 4 we sorry, for the next 6 weeks, we will look at how we can foster those marks because they're just biblical Christian marks that we should all have and their marks of godliness in our life. And by living that way, it will make the soil here at Fellowship Baptist Church rich for a move of God that we could never fathom and that we could never produce. Amen? So that's my prayer, that God would revive us here at Fellowship Baptist Church, and from that, it would pour out into our community, and we would see the town of Drumheller turned upside down with the love of God. Because revival's for the church. Revival's for those who have already been saved and have grown cold. But when a Christian is lit on fire again, and not in the Nero sense, okay? But in, thanks for those who got that joke. But in the sense that God lights the flame, people will come to salvation. People will come. So now, I want to talk about revival because it's something we all need. Whether you think you need it or not, you need revival. We all need revival because personal revival gives us a renewed sense of passion and zeal in areas of our lives that we have become apathetic in or complacent in. And for some of us, some of you are spiritually dead in. There hasn't been a pulse there for a while. And God can breathe new life into those areas and give you a renewed passion and a renewed zeal. And we should all want that. We don't want to be a stagnant, stinking pool here. We want to be streams of living water that's refreshing to our community. So we will spend six weeks on revival. And I don't want to look at it purely informational sort of way to just learn about what what happened in the past, revivals in the past. We will look at some of the elements of past revivals because they're very fascinating and encouraging. But what I want us to focus on is our preparation. And the very first step that we take to pursue revival or seek revival in His and in, in the influence of God in that is found in Psalm 85 in verse 6 specifically. And the principle I want us to hold on to for this sermon, the main idea is this, that uh, prayer is the kindling of the fire of revival. Without prayer, revival is not coming. All great historical revivals were lit with prayer, be it one faithful 55 plus person at Fellowship Baptist Church or somebody else or a group. Fire of revival is kindled by prayer. Maybe you've heard, if you've done any reading on revival, you've probably heard this word fire before, and it's oftentimes the synonymous idea with revival. Maybe you've even heard people speak this way, like, hey, I met this Christian, he or she was so on fire for God. Or maybe you said that about yourself, I want to be on fire for God, and thankfully he doesn't take us literally, but... Uh, Uh, because that would be interesting. But this, this idea, it's connected to this idea of burning passionate zeal for the Lord. And fire of revival is what warms and gives life to the Christian faith that is once it's cooled. Kind of like when you go camping and you come out back to your campfire and you see some embers, but you know what the flame was before. It was this roaring fire the night before, and now it's smoldering. And this is what revival does. It takes those embers and breathes new life to them, and the flames begin to burn. You know how fires work. You need some kindling. You need some small pieces of very dry wood. You put those together, and your goal is to ignite them quickly so that they will burn hot and fast in order for the bigger logs to catch fire. And the kindling for the fire of revival is prayer. You need it. So, with that, listen to Psalm 85 6. And Psalm 85 is a lament psalm. And the psalm was written to and sung by the children of Israel in the midst of them seeing their sin. They came to the cold reality of their sin, and they were regretful of how they have sinned. And they didn't like the ugliness of their sin, so they cry out to God in Psalm 85, asking Him to restore them again, to revive them again, to heal them. It's a beautiful psalm. They felt the pain of His displeasure for their pursuit of ungodliness. And what was born out of that was a desire for Revival. So Psalm 85.6 says, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? And with that, again, we can never have too much. Let's ask the Lord real fast to revive us. Father, revive us again. Will you not revive us again, O Lord, so that we, your people, may rejoice in you? Revive us, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's very simple today. We're going to consider two things. The first thing, we're going to consider the fire of revival, because this is sort of the introductionary sermon to the series. And then we're going to look at the kindling of revival, which is prayer. So let's first look at the fire revival. And looking at our text, right away, we begs the question, well, what is Revival. It says, will you not revive us again? So what is it? Because we don't want to assume what it is because revival has a lot of misinformation about it. Revival has a lot of erroneous practices that surround it. And it has been greatly abused by many denominations over the years. And I would assume that most Christians couldn't give a proper definition of revival. And it's not because they're not smart. Rather, it's because they were trained and raised in a context or church that has given them the wrong idea of what revival is. I know I was. So let me tell you what revival is not. Because sometimes the best way to define the things of God and who God is, is by defining what they're not. And when you define what they're not, it will put into focus clearly what it truly is. So revival is not an event. It's not an event that you can schedule or plan. I remember in the church I grew up, we said, okay, you know, next week we're holding revival evening services. Next week is revival. And you're like, wow, we can plan that? We can ha- make that happen? And and, and, and so, uh, you know, Pentecostals are known for this, but also Baptists are known for this. We're actually probably worse off in history on this. Uh, maybe you've heard of something called tent revivals. And the church makes it a big event. You know, some tent revivals were true revivals, but others were just trying to make it happen. And the church puts on this huge Huge event they erect a big tent or whatever maybe that's just the term they're using their building and they bring in an evangelist for a night or two a few nights of meetings and they call it revival and although the heart intent is good don't hear me wrong it's but the, what's problem is that it's communicating the wrong idea of what revival is it's something that we that can be planned or scheduled which is just not so so it's not an event that can be planned but it's also not an event Or it's not, uh, revival is not emotionalism. It's not just making people feel things. It's not just manipulating people. You see, we as humans, we have figured out how we can emotionally manipulate a crowd of people. In churches, we're the worst for it, right? We can play certain kinds of music. We can make it so repetitious that people forget what they're even saying, and they just become so charged by emotionalism. We can say certain types of things, and people fall for it. Because we know if we just use this right chord progression and build it the right way, then we know people will be moved. But is it truly God? Or are they being manipulated? We have learned how to do this well. We can make each other feel things. We can stir each other up emotionally, but that's not what revival is. And there's many examples of this in the church. And, and one that kind of made me laugh and a little bit mad was that some of these Baptist tent revivals, and I can only pick on the Baptist because I'm here, um, but uh, they would be holding, and they would have this section called the hot section of this. And this you know, is other Southern Baptists, so they're different than us. But uh, you know, they'd have the hot section of the tent and. And people knew that if you're bringing an unbeliever with you, you sit there. Because at the crescendo of the evangelist sermon, he would just go, and if you would just repent, and they're like, ho, ho, ho I'm a stranger. How does he know I'm not a believer? And they would fall for it. And a lot of them, you'd see false conversions happening and happening. People who, who you know, kind of like Jesus' parable, they sprung up really fast, but as the sun came out, they were scorched and dried up and didn't continue on. And I know I'll be unpopular for this one, but Charles Finney, for example, was a culprit of this. He sure was. In his book on revival, I read, I bought, I read, hoping to be impressed by it, but I was thoroughly disappointed by it. He says in his book, this is a direct quote, Revival is not a miracle of God, it's merely the right use of the constituted means. What's he saying? He's saying you can make it happen. He actually wrote a whole book on this, on the means of revival. You just do these certain things and God will send revival. And I'm not saying Charles Finney was not used in mighty ways by God. Don't hear me wrong. But I think his trajectory is what set a lot of churches up for failure and burnout by revivalism. You can make it happen. What he's saying is you can make it happen as long as you know what you're doing. You can manufacture it. Another direct quote, he says, it's a psychological phenomenon. This is right from his book. He says, that's what he says, and this is not a biblical picture either. So it's not an event, it's not emotionalism, and it's, this one's probably most commonly believed amongst us, it's not the surprising work of God that never happens. Right, let me explain this. If you've done any reading on revival, it's commonly referred to as the surprising work of God. But we have often done is, yeah, we believe it's the surprising work of God, but that's going to happen on somebody else's church. That's not going to happen in my life. Maybe that's going to happen in somebody else's life. Or that's only something that God did in the past, but not today. So we believe it's the surprising work of God, but we believe the lie that it's something that will never happen. But let me explain. We see whole cities in history coming to Christ, and it's absolutely astounding. It's beautiful, and it can still happen. Today, So it's not the surprising work that never happens. It's the surprising work that will happen. But let me give you my favorite definition of revival. It comes from a man that none of you probably know, but he is probably the world's foremost authority on the history of revival. His name is Richard Owen Roberts, and he says revival is an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. An extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. And that's a wonderful definition, but we have to define it and unpack it because it's so simple and broad that you can make it say whatever you want, <laughs> but, but, uh, and we don't want to misuse it. But what he's saying is it's an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit which ex- uh, produces extraordinary results. So first of all, that means that revival is a divine work. It's a work of God. God initiates it, not me. I'm not going to call next week, hey, revival meetings. Yeah, we can call prayer meetings that pray for revival, but does God send it? Well, we'll find out. It is he who initiates it. It is not an invention of man. We cannot manufacture it. You cannot manipulate people enough to make it happen. It's a sovereign work of God. The Holy Spirit produces it. So if you're uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit, you're going to be uncomfortable with revival. Let me just say this. If you're uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit, you need revival, okay? Like, that's an issue. And, and, and the Holy Spirit, it's an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit, which produces extraordinary results, meaning real revival changes people. They don't just supercharge people for a few days. It actually changes people for a lifetime. Real revival renews your faith in such a way that you don't only feel differently, you actually begin to live differently. Sometimes we go to a good church service, we head to a conference or whatever it might be, and we start getting supercharged. We feel good, and we're surrounded by a lot of like-minded Christians. Everything is pouring into us, and we're like, wow, this is so amazing. And we start making all these declarations like, hey, I'm going to pray more, I'm going to read my Bible more, I'm going to tell my kids about Jesus more, all these things, and you come home and you get smacked in the face by the mundaneness of life. And where do all those commitments go? Right down the drain. Because you're just being emotionally driven by the context. So that's not what revival is. Because and, and, revival sparks a flame in your soul that's been saturated with gasoline that will transform the mundaneness of your life into glory of God. It will transform everything. So here's what's amazing about revival. And it might make it a little bit more understanding for you. I was wrestling with how do I really portray what revival is, because revival is often seen as this thing that is fundamentally different than what's happening today in church, but that's not true. So I wrote it this way, what happens in revival is not seen, uh, is not to be seen as miraculously different from the regular experience of church, rather the difference lies in degree and not in kind, okay, that's the important part, the difference lies in degree and not in kind, Yes, it's more widespread. Yes, it's supercharged, if you will. But it's only a heightening of normal Christianity. So yes, revival is the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit, which produces extraordinary results, but it's only a heightening of what should already be happening every day in our church. So let me be clear. And I do apologize we have to define so much in this first sermon, but it's necessary on this subject. What makes it extraordinary work is not that it's new, different or crazy, what makes it extraordinary is that only the Holy Spirit can do it, and he does it in a greater measure. So you see, when the Holy Spirit revives somebody, he's doing the same thing he always does, which is the conviction of sin. He regenerates dead people and makes them spiritually alive. He teaches us, he leads us, he fills us, and he governs us. These are all the things the Holy Spirit does. And and we need to do a series on the Holy Spirit, and I have one planned for October. It's coming up. We will talk about the works of the Holy Spirit, but for now, these are his basic works of what he does. So all the things the Holy Spirit does in the Christian life is what he does in revival. The difference is, is that he's doing them in greater measure. It's kind of like punctuated sanctification. It's quick. It moves very fast. And so it's not that the Spirit's doing something new or unheard of or crazy. He's doing the same thing he always does every day, but just accelerate it. So it's, it's extraordinary, just to recap, because only he can do it, and it's extraordinary because he's doing it in greater measure. Oftentimes what you see when revival breaks out on a large scale, is deep conviction. This is why when you read in historical accounts of revival in Europe and in the Americas, we see people becoming so convicted that they fall to the ground, trembling in the presence of God. I'm not talking about that weird stuff where they start flipping around and barking like dogs. No, what I'm talking about is they come face to face with a holy, righteous God, and they see their sin, and they see how God in his holiness cannot stand their sin, cannot stand their apathy, and they hit the floor trembling under the hand of a holy God. If you're here and you're not in christ you are under the judgment of a holy god and you will stand before him and he cannot have sin in his presence but they don't just stay on the floor trembling what we actually see is they begin to experience a kind of joy that they cannot contain They begin to sing. They begin to get excited. And most profoundly, they have to share it with others. The joy of the Lord is in them, and they have to share it with others. It's a true change. It's a complete 180. Some of us make like 360s, right? We just go very back around. This is a complete 180. It's a revitalization of the soul. And it's extraordinary because this work can happen on a few different levels. It can happen on the level of the individual, which we're focusing on with this series. It can happen on the level of the local church, which is also our focus, because I would argue that if it's gonna happen with us, you know, it's gonna happen in our church. You think COVID 19 is contagious? Just wait till one of you get awakened with revival. It's gonna spread like wire, wildfire, it's gonna go right through our church. So, local church level. And then also we see this this third category, which are major revivals, or they get categorized sometimes as Great Awakenings. And these are the ones that sweep across geographical locations. So, this is it's starting with maybe a group of people. So, let's just, for example, say revival breaks out here in Drumheller, and then it goes to the other churches, and then it goes to Calgary, then it goes to Edmonton, then it goes across the Mountain Divide. It hits B.C., and then it starts to spread across the prairies. Geographical locations, God is pouring out His Spirit. These are major revivals. And it's an amazing thing to study, and I encourage you to look into them. But, but, but this is what revival is. J.I. Packer says revival is, is the visitation of God. Because I want us to focus on personal revival. So revival is the visitation of God, which brings to life Christians who have been sleeping. Have you been sleeping? And restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness. Thence springs a vivid sense of sin and a profound exercise of heart and repentance. Praise and love with a what? An evangelistic flow. We often connect salvation to revival because of that point right there. Because Christians are actually doing what they're called to do. And that's sharing their faith. Revival is God, the Holy Spirit, drawing near to us in such a way to do a work in us that he's already done, but in a greater measure that we might be restored in our zeal and in our faith and our ongoing communion with God. And it's very, like, very much like fire, because just like without fire, humanity would have died, right? We need heat to cook our food. We need heat to survive cold winters. We need heat and fire to live. But fire is also destructive, It's good when it's contained, but fire is also destructive. It burns, it hurts, and it consumes. Revival, hear this, is also destructive. It also burns, and it also consumes and hurts. Because like fire, it will consume and refine. What do I mean? It's not going to be destructive to your Christian life. It's going to be destructive to those areas that you're still holding on to. It will burn up and consume sin in your life. It will burn up and consume complacency in unprincipled, undisciplined lives. It will burn up and consume your idols that you continue to hold on to. It will burn up your petty grievances and your laziness and your selfishness and your apathy and most of all your boredom. The fire of revival consumes those things. And then it begins to refine the things in you that are good and godly the things that God has placed in you, and he begins to strengthen those things. Revival is like a fire burning up sin and waste and purifying godliness and goodness. Prayer is the kindling that starts that fire. So who needs revival? I'm asking the question because how do you know if you need revival? Some of you here, you know you need it. You know you need it because maybe you've been pursuing sin in your home life. And that sin, I just want you to hear this, will destroy you. doesn't matter if it's done in secret. God sees it. And it will destroy you and ruin you. It will kill you. And some of we confess that as Christians with our mind. Yeah, yeah, sin, yes, yeah, yeah, the, the consequence of sin is death. But we don't truly believe that all the time. But it's true. Sin will kill you. And if, and if you say it doesn't, that tells me that you don't understand the nature of sin. Some of you are pursuing sin, and you're hiding it, and you're indulging in it, and you need revival. You need revival. Others of you maybe are not pursuing sin, but you're just here bored out of your mind. You're reading your Bible, and it's dry and boring. You don't even desire God. You don't even desire to read it. And when you do pray, it just feels cold and empty and laborious and not enjoyable. So let me give you five signs that you need revival. And if any of these five are true, guess what? You need revival. So the five signs that you need revival, the first one is callousness. If you are callous in your heart towards your own sin, it means you need a revival. How do you know if you're callous over your sin? Well, do you give a pass? To your sin, telling yourself that, hey, it's not that big of a deal, it's not harming anyone anyways, it's not like sister so-and-so in the church, like she's the sinner. Do you feel the need to confess your sins to God in prayer and repent of those sins? To apply uh, uh, discipline to your life to enable you to pursue the opposite of that vice and replace it with the virtue? For example, if you're a selfish person who doesn't like to share, are you pursuing Christ in such a way by giving your life away freely to others in a tangible way that actually costs you something? Or are you just callous? I don't need to press into this that much. You know if you're callous. If your sins aren't bothering you, if your sins aren't driving you to Christ, then you need revival. If you're always measuring yourself up against other people and finding them wanting and you're not, you need revival. The second one is arrogance. This is pride if you're arrogant, especially towards others when you're judging others and seeing others as better, or so, so seeing yourself as better than others, that you see yourself as morally superior because I don't sin the same way they do. And if you find yourself measuring yourself against others, like I said, and always finding yourself in the positive and them in the negative, that's arrogance and you're in need of revival. The third one is boredom, which I would say is probably the major one here. If you're bored with Jesus, if you're bored with his word, then you need revival. You know if the word of God is dead to you experientially. Now the word of God is alive and active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword and it will pierce and divide. We know that, but all of us get to points in our lives at various times for various reasons when the word of God feels dull like a butter knife. feels dull. Now it's not but it just feels that way and looks that way. So if you're bored here with Jesus, you're bored with words, you're bored with prayer, then this is a symptom that there is a problem in your life. And what you need is the reviving influence of the Holy Spirit. The fourth sign is defeatism. Defeatism is the person who is just self-loathing, the one who's given up that they will ever progress or get better in their Christian walk. The person who gives up and says things like, I'm never going to mature in my faith. I'll never grow. I'm never going to quit this sin. And what you're actually saying to God when you say that is, hey, you know that good work that you have promised to bring to completion in Philippians? Yeah, I don't believe you. You're a liar you can't do that. You're saying, you can't make me mature. You can't make things grow. You can't make me persevere. You can't make me stronger. You can't purify me. If you're defeated in your perspective of life and you think that you will never be the person who God wants you to be, then you are in need of revival. And the fifth and last sign is indifference, that you're indifferent. Specifically that you're indifference to others' sufferings or others' pain and hurt and salvation. If people are suffering and hurting around you and you're not moved to compassion by that in that moment, you don't have the heart of Christ for them and you need revival. But it goes further than that. If you're not broken and burdened over the lost state of sinful men and women, who will go to hell without Christ? This is not something made up. This is not something just to give you a little bit of motivation to share your gospel that you have with your neighbor. This is true. Outside of Christ, they will burn for an eternity in the lake of fire. Separate it from the love and blessings of God under his wrath for eternity. If you are not moved by compassion for your neighbor, for your coworker, for your friend, for your family member, then in that moment you are not exhibiting the heart of Christ and you need revival. So whether it's callousness, arrogance, boredism, boredism boredom, or defeatism, or indifference, most of us are in need of revival in our hearts. It is God's work. And we need him to do it, an extraordinary work in us that we have been sleeping, as J.I. Packer says, and we need to wake up. Now, if it's God's work, you might be thinking, well, what am I supposed to do then? (laughs) If revival is God's doing, then what is my role to play in this? And that's the whole purpose of the series. And the answer is that there is something that we can do, and there is a role that we can play, and it's called something that the Holy Spirit uses, and it's means. You've probably heard the phrase, the means of grace before in your life, and if not, that's okay. The means of grace are those things that God has given to us graciously, and he uses those things to sanctify us and bring about conversion. So what are the means of grace? Well, just simply, we'll flesh these out a little more next week. The Word of God, prayer, corporate worship, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. The means of grace are what God uses to sanctify His people, and revival is a sort of accelerated sanctification over a brief period of time. Something I like to say is, sanctification is a process. When people come to my office and say, I just can't kick this thing, it's like, okay, like, have a measure of grace for yourself. Sanctification is a process. But in revival, it's a sort of punctuated sanctification. It comes very, very fast and very, very quickly. So if we want to be revived in our hearts and in our lives, the first step we need to do is pray. Because prayer has historically started and repeated most of the great revivals that we read about in church history. And I have read a lot of accounts leading up to this sermon series, and it's fascinating and exciting. So the last general revival that we see sweeping across geographical regions, okay, so this is the one that is not just isolated to a believer or a church, but this is one that's spreading across communities and a country, was in the 1940s. 50s in Scotland, and it's the last one that we have any true record of, and what you, what, where you see extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary regra, uh, results across the whole area. It's not how many people you can get to come forward or at the end of a service. It's not how many people you can get to make a decision to get baptized at the end of service. That's not the mark of revival. Those are good things, and those are a byproduct of revival, but that's not of a mark of revival. Those things are are good, but not revival. What revival is is the Spirit, what He's doing in our hearts, in the hearts of the people that produces dramatic change in their lives. So really, we're talking 40s, 50s. We're in need of another big revival. Amen? Amen. And typically, prayer is what produces it. And one of the reasons prayer precedes revival is because prayer prepares the heart as it pleads with God. That's what prayer does. Prayer Prepares the heart for revival while pleading with God for revival. It gets your soul ready because listen, hear this. If we're going to pray for revival, revival is intense. We need to be prepared for it because it's actually painful and it hurts and it's messy. Because it's refining us and removing the things that we're holding on to, that we're still grasping onto, that are hindering our walk with Christ. Revival is a burning of those things to make us stronger, like gold being purified through fire. We need it to bring us back to a place of health. Now, prayer prepares the heart for revival while pleading to God for it. So, what is prayer? And there's a lot of great definitions of prayer, and I'm sure many of you can give me really great explanations of prayer, but I wanted to keep it simple for today and define prayer as this, that prayer is drawing near to God through Christ in an expression of a desire and dependency. So the desire and dependency, so faith, trust, trusting Him. So this is what prayer is, that you're a need to be revived and that revival is a work of God. And you can't revive yourself, but what you can do is revive your discipline of prayer. You can revive the discipline, but at the same time, you're still longing and holding on to and dependency that God will revive your heart. And that's what you need. That's what we need. So this is our role in this, that we are supposed to pray, that we are supposed to draw near to God in such a way through Christ Jesus, and an expression of desire and dependency. So looking at Psalm 85, 6 again, he's saying, will you not revive us again? Won't you do this? What's he saying? He's saying, you've done it before. We know this is what you do. We know this is to be true and how you respond to situations like this that we're in. God, will you not do it again? so that we, your people, can have the joy of salvation again, that we, your people, might rejoice in you again, O God. We want to rejoice in you, he's saying, to delight in your ways and your law and your love and worship and share you with the world around us. So God, for this to happen, we need you to revive us. We need you to soften our hearts and to change us. And the first step to pursuing revival is to pray. And I know the logical question is, well, how do you pray then? And there's a, lot of defin- there's a lot of steps and ways that you can pray, and there's really good ones. You know, it's more than just waking up in the morning and going, oh yeah, hey God, it's Aaron. By the way, don't forget to rev- revive me today. You know, Okay, thanks. Check in later. So what is prayer? One model that's easy to follow, and many of you already know it, so this is why I want to use it. And it's also based on the Lord's Prayer is the axe model. Many of you are familiar with it, and and for others of you, it might be a brand new tool. But why this tool I like so much is because it's easy to fall in a rhythm with, for one, but it also guards you against from just going to God and asking for stuff. Most of our prayer lives is that. If you did a survey of your prayer life, even over the last month, hopefully you've prayed in the last month, have you worshipped God in your prayer, or have you just making demands? So it's acts, and it's an acrostic. A it stands for adoration. So when you sit down to pray, you adore God, and this means that you are praising God for who He is. And this open before you, either digital or physical, is very helpful, especially in the Psalms. Read through a few Psalms in your prayer time, and then begin to look for the attributes of God that are described to them. This is you meditating on who God is, on His holiness, just for a couple categories, on His power, on His justice, on His love, on His goodness, on His truth. And you can begin to say things like, God, I praise you because you are holy. I praise you, O Lord, because of your justice i praise you god because you are good and you begin to sit there and worship him and as i said this is tough to do without scripture because scripture gives you an elevated view of god and the words to speak to god now when you fall into the rhythm you're going to have these in your brain because it becomes second nature to you but have the word of god open for you irks me when when christians say my my average time of prayer is spent with a closed bible Have your Bible open in your prayer. Whether it be a psalm in front of you or a paragraph from one of the epistles and you're reading it and then you begin to look at the passage and ask the question, what does this passage tell me about God, His people, who He is and begin to confess those things out loud to God. So that's A, that's the part of Acts. It's all about adoring God, praising God, not asking for anything. Don't move quickly past this. If you only get 10 minutes to pray a day, use 8 minutes in A. Worship God, train your heart, press into God and praise his holy name. Let's move on to C, which stands for confession. Confession is the act of confessing your sins to God, seeking forgiveness for your failures. And after spending time in the word of God and praising him in A, it's going to elevate who he is and you're going to see that he is a holy God, that he's a mighty God, that he's a faithful God, and you're going to see you're not. You're going to see the sinner you are, saved by grace. And that's going to move you to worship God. Scripture is also helpful this as well. Because what you'll see, if there's a command in that scripture, you're going to see how you break that command. And you begin to confess your sins. Yes, this technically is you asking God for something, but it's asking Him for grace. It's different from getting to your list of demands, like I like to call it. So we have adoration, we have confession, then we have T, which is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is different from adoration. People tend to confuse A and T a lot. Uh, 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 Adoration, A, is praising God for who he is. And T, thanksgiving, is thanking God for what he has already done for you. The forgiveness of your sins, right? The provision that he has made for your life, your family, your friends, your church, whatever it might be, you are thanking God for his kindness and his provision. So here it's more about his work and not about who he is, even though those are connected in God. Thankfulness and gratitude for his work and then adoration and praise are for his person, who he is. So we have ACT and now we have S, which is supplication. This is now where you get to come before the Lord of grace and you get to make your plea before him and ask him on yours for yourself or for others. This is your helpful. This is where your heartfelt plea for God to revive you comes in. That's how you pray. But you might ask, well, what if I'm apathetic towards prayer? It's not something I, I really want to do. I've heard people say that, uh, and, I, and I think it's the most idiotic logic. So if you say this to me, that, just believe that. That's what I'm thinking. Okay, it's the most idiotic logic out there. Well, if I don't want to pray, then I shouldn't pray, because then I'll just be a hypocrite. That's dumb. Like that's just so dumb. That's just horrible logic. Because what's more likely? What what is God what's more likely? God is going to work in a heart that's not praying, or God's gonna work in a heart that is praying. Do you think that God can't overcome your coldness? You don't think God can overcome your apathy? Do you really think God can't overcome and use your half-hearted prayers? If you're apathetic to prayer, like you just don't want to do it, you don't have the motivation, then listen to this great advice from the great Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter. He says, prayer itself, when you are... Oh, I did not put it in there. Sorry about that. Well, just listen to me. Prayer itself, when you are, are all but incapable of it, must be performed only to a degree that you are able... He further states, do not misunderstand me. In matters of absolute necessity, let me emphasize, you must endeavor to do them no matter what. If you are slow to believe, to repent, to love God and your neighbor, to be sober, righteous, and godly, or even to pray at all, then here you must strive and not excuse yourself because of reluctance. Baxter elsewhere assures us that thoughts of love and mercy would breed love and sweetness of the soul. We cannot remain apathetic when such sentiments enter our hearts. Don't believe the lie of the enemy that says, hey, just because you don't want to, you shouldn't. That's from the pit of hell. So to summarize Baxter, if you're not feeling it, if you're apathetic to pray, you should pray anyways even it feels like a chore. Ask God then to help you to feel it, to change your heart, and to give you better motives, to revive you. We need the Holy Spirit to revive us. I know I do. We need to seek it, which we're going to talk about next week, because prayer is the kindling of the fire of revival. So let me close with these passages. Luke 11, 9 to 18. You all know it. It's the knock, seek, ask passages. And I tell you, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and you will, it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be open. Pray and believe that God is going to give you what you need, church. And Jesus illustrates this in the next verses. He says, what father among you, if his sons ask for a fish, will instead of, of a fish give a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God gives revival to people who pray. He revives the needy and the hungry, those who seek it. Why would God not grant it? And hear this. If you have trusted in Christ for uh, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you are forgiven and you are reconciled to God, then He is your Father, and this verse applies to you. And He loves to give His children not just good gifts, but gifts they actually need. So ask for it. Don't be embarrassed. Ask for it, and then wait for it in anticipation for when he gives it to you. And let me say this. Revival implies that you had life, this strong spiritual life. It's not that you've lost your salvation, but it does mean that things have grown dull and cold. It happens in marriages all the time. You begin to part. And you need God to revive the passion and enthusiasm that you have. But God cannot revive you if you have not believed. If you're here, and that's you, you don't need revival. You need regeneration. You need to, right now, today, give your life to Christ for the first time, to, for your heart of stone to be taken and a heart of flesh to be replaced. You need to be born again. You must be born again to cleanse you from your sins and to be clothed in his righteousness. So whether you are a non-Christian thinking through these things or you need to be born again by the Holy Spirit or, uh, and you need to be ho- uh, born again by the Holy Spirit or you're a believer already and you don't need to be born again because of a once-and-done deal, you need to be revived. But in both of these cases, we are seeking the work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, that we might be the people whom God has designed us to be. So know the God who is and glorify Him in the world that He has called us to live in. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, we thank You, Lord, and we praise You. We thank You that You are a God of grace. And as those verses showed us as we closed, Lord, that You are a good Father who desires to give gifts that we need, good gifts. And Father, so we ask with anticipation that you would revive us here. That you would revive us again, O Lord, that your people might rejoice in you. Thank you, O Lord, that you are a faithful and true Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.